It's good to see you this morning. Um, I just have one, one major announcement um, as we uh, get started. And we'll have a, there's a few announcements that will be coming up here in the next few weeks. So, um, and we'll have these on all of our social media and stuff like that and be highlighting them over the next few weeks if you happen to miss one or two. So, um, on the 25th of this month, April 25th, 4th, April 24th, um, which is a Saturday, April 24th, Saturday, 9 a.m. until whenever we're done, or whatever, we'll have a, kind of like the annual spring work party here at the church. We do like landscaping and painting and big spring cleaning projects and some light construction projects and lots and lots of things to do uh, here on the property and the building. And so if you would you would like to come and help us out. It starts at 9 a.m. on that Saturday, and uh, we'll work until we're either done or everyone's tired. Of course, we'll have snacks and meals and all that provided for you and uh, have jobs for all ages, stages of life, working abilities, everything like that. So um, make a note of that in your calendar or if you're able to come on the 24th, and uh, we, would, we would really appreciate your help. Um, There'll be, and like I said, there'll be a, a few more announcements about some serving opportunities and training opportunities and stuff like that coming out here next week and on social media this week, so you can be looking, looking for that. Um, if you're new with us this morning, I'm sorry, I, my name is Cameron, I'm the pastor here at Conduit, and uh, we welcome you, we hope you have a, a good experience with us, we've been praying for you, even though we didn't know you before today, uh, we were praying for you, we prayed for you this morning before... You all got here, and uh, praying that the Holy Spirit would use His Word to transform our lives, and and uh, that the um, Holy Spirit would. I've been praying a little bit, a little bit, this because I'm a little scared of it. But I've been praying a little bit lately that the Holy Spirit would really manifest His presence with us um, as we're worshiping and just in our in our communal life together. Um, and throughout the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, actually talking about the work and the ministry and the action of the Holy Spirit, specifically right after Jesus was ascended back into heaven and in the really the beginning stages of the early church in the book of Acts. Uh, so that's where we're going to be the next few weeks. Um, because last week, you know, was Easter, and it's like this incredibly big you know, apex moment of the Christian faith and of the kind of the church calendar and, you know, everyone gets dressed to the nines, you know, and we're all here and there's flowers and it's just like, it's just, a, you know, Easter, who doesn't love Easter? Everyone loves Easter, right? And you feel like you may, may leave uh, Easter Sunday or Easter weekend being like, you know, have this um, on sort of a spiritual high maybe, maybe if I can use that term. And then you go back to work on Monday morning or Tuesday, you know, and like Monday after Easter is always like the most Monday Monday that has ever Mondayed, right? Um, and then the week is just kind of feels like, Ugh, you know, I don't want to do anything. And then you get to this week and you're like, well, just back to old humdrum Sunday mornings, right? Hopefully not, but the reality is, is that when we go really high, Sometimes we feel like the only natural place that we can go is down, right? Or go really, go really low. 
And if you think about it in terms of what the disciples must have been experiencing, like just the kind of up and down shock of emotions, like Jesus is with us, and then Jesus is, and then we abandon him, right? And he's dead, and then he's in the tomb, and he's still dead. But then someone says he's risen from the dead, right? And then we, but we're still scared, and we don't know if we believe it, and what's going on. And so um, the, the question is, is like, what could possibly be next after the resurrection? I mean, like, after the resurrection of Jesus, what could possibly come next? What of importance could there possibly be? Well, all four, all four accounts of the Gospels. So the Gospels, when we say the word Gospels, what we're talking about is that in the New Testament of your Bible, um, the New Testament is like the, the Jesus era, right, of history. In the New Testament of the Bible, there are four Gospels, or four written accounts of individuals who had direct experience and life with Jesus. And from their perspectives... They wrote down what they saw and what Jesus said and what they felt was important and, and um, what they wanted to communicate to those that they were writing to. For instance, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our four Gospels, are really, they're different. If you read them, you can tell the differences, but they're also the same, right? They, they tell the same stories. They may tell them from different perspectives and with different details as it's like, different people notice different things, right? And, and Matthew, we know that he wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, right? And, and Luke, he was really educated and wrote primarily to a Greek audience or a non-Jew a non audience. And you can tell in the way that he writes and the language that he uses. And John, John was all about writing, not necessarily to like record chronological events in Jesus' life, but he was like writing, okay, I'm going to write this account because I, my purpose is not to, to recollect the life of Jesus, but I want you to believe in the ministry and the work um, and the, the Messiahship or the Savior, Jesus. And so they each kind of had their own little things, Right? But then there were these things that they all recorded almost the same. That they all talked about in the same way, or that they, that they at least included in significant ways. And one thing that all four gospel writers wrote about was these appearances of Jesus after he, resur after he was resurrected from the dead. And then what he would tell the people that he met in those post-resurrection experiences, and then what they would go do. And in a lot of cases, they were really similar. In other cases, just like by perspective, they would just talk differently, right? Um, and so we're going to talk, I want to look at maybe one example um, of a post-resurrection experience that the disciples had with Jesus. Meaning, what did he come and tell them? What did he say to them? What, was, what were those passing words? Because, you know, as a, as a pastor, I've, I've had the honor, um, the privilege, also like just the weight of sitting, at, sitting on like the side of, a, of many people's deathbed. They're holding their hand in the last, in the last days, moments, even breaths of their life. 
And what is always, um, I don't want to say interesting, but what is always a, um, a, a memorable aspect of that experience is literally what are their last words? What are the things that they are saying, not even the very, the very last words, but, but the last words, what are the things they're saying in the last days? What are, the, what are the things that they're saying in the last moments? Because the things that they're saying at the end of their life, you have to assume, are extremely important. Right? You have to assume are extremely important. Because a lot of pressure, I know, to catch that phone. Um, because why would you waste, why would you waste breath? And especially in the ministry of Jesus, like, you had to know that what he was going to say to his disciples in those last moments was going to be critically important. What were the last words? Some of these things we see in the Gospels. So let's look at Luke's account, okay? The Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible, have a Bible, you can open it to Luke. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seats. You can get one on your phone. You can look up on the screen here. We'll have, it, we'll have it for you. If you don't have a Bible, like you don't personally own a Bible and you would like to own a Bible, we have Bibles for you and we're happy to give them to you. They're available right out at the coffee bar. You can get them before or after service or go grab one right now. So Luke chapter 24 Starting at verse 36. So Luke is talking about the disciples here. And um, he's referring to them when he says they. So while they, the disciples, were still talking about this, uh, another resurrection appearance that was, had been reported to them, while they were still talking about the last one, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Well, again, let's, um, be, uh, let's be gentle with the disciples. Like We always think, like, oh, the disciples, they never believed, and they always doubted, and they're a bunch of knuckleheads, right? And yeah, true, uh, maybe, but none, no more than me, right? No more than you, right? They're standing around talking, and then all of a sudden, Jesus appears and says, peace be with you. Look, if someone just appears to me and says, peace be with you, the last thing that's going to be with me is peace, okay? <laughs> like, like, that's just weird, right? So, but Jesus appears to them, and they say, peace be with you, and Luke says that they were startled thinking that they had seen a ghost. And this seems like it would have been or, you know, rather normal. Because we think of ghosts in this way of like being all spirit form. Right? Walking through walls. Not having anything, like there's no way to grab a ghost. Right? It's like trying to grab a cloud or a a puff of smoke, right? There's, there's nothing tangible there 
for you to grab onto, right? And, and so this idea that it would be Jesus standing before them, even if they recognized him in his resurrected form, they would probably assume that he was just a spirit that was walking through walls and appearing before them, right? But what Jesus then does is Jesus... Uh, Jesus goes about this little task to teach his disciples by way of example what resurrection in the Christian faith truly is. Because if resurrection in the Christian faith is kind of like this ghostly spirit apparition type of resurrection while we just walk through walls and we float on clouds while angels fly around us playing harps, right? Um, Then that's one thing. But if the example in life of Jesus is anything, it, it teaches us and it shows us that the idea of resurrection that Scripture teaches and that Jesus experienced is much different than we often or classically think about resurrection, which is this kind of disembodied spiritual form. What scripture teaches is that resurrection um resurrection in like jesus faith resurrection is not simply a spiritual existence meaning that we we are all spirit then and no body the body is bad because and it's dead and it's going to rot in a way a grave but my soul and my spirit is going to be alive with Jesus, and we're going to float in the clouds, and we're going to hear the harps, and we're going to walk through walls. But Scripture actually shows and teaches, even by Jesus' own life, that resurrection is not just spirit, that resurrection is about the physical body being resurrected to new life. That, That resurrection for Jesus, and then by faith in Jesus, resurrection for us is not something that we will experience in kind of some kind of like spiritual, existential, attached from physical reality resurrection, but that we will have physical flesh and bones. We will, we will grab and we will touch and we will feel and we will, and we will taste and we will, have, and we will have sensation. Jesus shows the disciples here in Luke chapter 24 that he was not just a ghost. That resurrection is not just ghostly existence, but very much alive in a physical body. You look at what happens next in the next few verses. Jesus tries to show this to them. In verse 30, where we left off, right, 38, he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is, it is I myself. Not, not some, not some disconnected spiritual reality or ghost. No, it it is me. It is the, it is the man that you know. It is the one that you have followed. It is the, it is the one that has flesh and bones. Touch me and see, Jesus says. Experience the physicality of the resurrected life. 
A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, Jesus says. When he, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. So like, imagine they were so overwhelmed with joy at seeing Jesus. So overwhelmed with amazement at what was going on. That they were having a difficult time reconciling what they were experiencing on Good Friday and now what they were experiencing here, where Jesus is like, hey, look, guys, I'm here. I'm not gone and come back and... Like, it is, it is really, truly me. Touch me and see. Feel, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It is... It is I, ghosts don't have flesh and blood. It is very much me that is here. Then at the end of verse 41, he says to them, Do you have anything here to eat? Does anyone know what ghosts eat? That would be a funny question to ask your kids later today. All right, what does a ghost eat? Blueberries? Oh, blueberries. Oh, I would expect that from Bryce's Instagram later, not necessarily Jody, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Point taken. Ghosts eat blueberries. Got him. <sighs> That's good. I'm going to write that down, right? <laughs> Sorry I asked. Um, <laughs> ghosts don't eat anything, right? Because they're not real. <laughs> There's no, there's no body. There's no flesh and bones. So what does Jesus say? He says, do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish, and he, he eats it. Now, do you think Jesus was hungry? Well, I don't know. Maybe he was hungry. But I think the point here is he was like, hey, touch and see. Know that it is I that you see before you. Now watch me eat, right? This fish doesn't, like, fall to the floor right, because I don't have any stomach, right, it's like, actually nourishes my physical body, I can taste it, right, it's, it's, it's pleasurable to eat, right, like, like, the existence that you see here is not just merely a spiritual one, but a, but a physical one, here's what I want you to understand about resurrection, okay, uh, the church, we, do, we have done a bad job historically teaching this. Okay? We've done a really bad job. Um, resurrection, when you, and, when, when, when you and I talk about being resurrected from the dead when Jesus comes back, or living in eternity or in heaven with him, right? Resurrection life is an embodied life. Meaning you're going to touch things and you're going to taste things, and you're going to have flesh and blood, right? You're going to have bones. There's going to be, you're, you're going to be able to hold the physical hand of a loved one. It is not resurrected life, according to the Christian faith, universally throughout Scripture, is not 
a spiritual sit-on-the-clouds type of life. It is a real stomp-your-feet, hear-the-music, taste-the-food, touch-your-loved-one, smell-the-smells, feel-the-sun, physical, resurrected body. You see, the defeat of death that Jesus earned us on the cross and in the grave is not some, like, spiritual workaround. It wasn't a, like, in Euchre, it wasn't the trump card that Jesus placed on the table being like, well, haha, I'll just come back in spirit, right? And we'll get around this whole bodily death thing, right? No, it was, it was the absolute, not just defeat of death, but it was the destruction of the curse of death. So now, so now physical death in resurrection no longer exists for those who trust in Jesus because in resurrection, our whole being, spirit, soul, and body, is resurrected to glorified life in Jesus. Because, tell me if this is true about your faith. I know there has been times that it has been true about my faith, where thinking about going to heaven or eternity and this kind of just like wispy, ghostly, spiritual, heavenly existence, it has at some times in my life and faith felt a little disappointing to me. It's felt like, well, I mean, like, what is heaven if I can't hug my wife? Right? If I can't just, like, feel that. What is heaven if I can't taste my coffee? <laughs> it's some other place, I'll tell you what. Like, right? What, what is heaven if there's not, like, this tangible, physical, sensory experience? Well, you won't care about that because you'll be with Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And I get it, right? But also understand that when, when the Father created us, right? He did not create us as bodies, bad. Spirits, good. We'll just keep the spirits. We'll throw away the bodies, right? The creation account in Genesis is really clear and really interesting at this moment. All throughout creation, in the creation account in Genesis, the Father, right, is just speaking things into existence. Light, sun, darkness, water, sky, right? And it's just like, boop, there. Okay? And then it comes to you and I. And it's like, the whole creation account it's like he just totally pumps the brakes. And it says that he took from the dirt of the ground and he formed, right? He formed the outline of a man. And I, I picture of like the father kneeling down on the ground like a kid plays in a sandbox, like forming the outline, going over all of like the fingerprints, right? Making every little... He could have like spoke us into existence, man. 
But no, he took his time creating. And then once he had created what he was like, yeah, I like that. I think I'll put my spirit in that. Right? Like, God chose our bodies to be a vessel, literally a vessel for his Holy Spirit. And then the word says that he breathed into that form his spirit and it came to life. Right? So it is the, it is the connection of the spirit and the body that represents the created life that the Father designed at the beginning. And so in resurrection, we are returning, right? We're not losing the body so that we can keep the spirit. We're returning to the glorified life that God designed in creation and that was alive and well and thriving and flourishing before sin. So resurrection is not just this spiritual thing. It's a physical embodiment where the whole, if you could say, institution of death, is, there's not a workaround, it's destroyed. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, that, or today, that, that, that Paul says that death has been swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. That it, it's not just like a, a thing, but no, it's, it's swallowed, it's gone, it's, it no longer exists. So there is this, there, there are these, these pa- this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so, I mean, you can keep your finger in Luke if you want, but I want you to turn, if you're in Luke, turn to the right. It's like a couple, couple books there. You can go Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you're going to hit 1 Corinthians. You're going to be in chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. And um, it's interesting that believers from the very beginning of the Christian faith have been asking these questions about resurrection, right? And like, what is resurrection and what does it really mean? And that this was one of the, um, you know, this was one of the main issues that the Pharisees had with Jesus. Is that Jesus was proclaiming resurrection. And his disciples were, were proclaiming resurrection Well, the Pharisees, the, a sect in Jewish religious life, did not believe that resurrection, or um, that resurrection, I'm sorry, the Sadducees, it's the Sadducees that didn't believe that resurrection existed. The Sadducees didn't believe it, didn't believe that resurrection was a thing. Pharisees were like, yeah, we're good with it, good with resurrection. Sadducees, mm-mm, no resurrection. And so a big part of Jesus' ministry was like unraveling this. And then it seems that Paul began to unravel this as well as people in the Greek world, the non-Jewish world that he was ministering to, had all these questions about resurrection as well. Like, well, it's not really, you don't really need to, it's not really central to the faith, like I can, I can love and believe in Jesus, right, without, without like having to hold on to this idea of resurrection. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, 
is that without the resurrection, there is no Christian faith. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. So the, 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 the pivot point of all of Christianity now becomes the resurrection. Like, because if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, if he did not swallow up the grave in victory over sin and over death, then what does that make him? That makes him just among another host of good, moral, religious, ethical teachers, but having no, um, no tremendous, like, incarnational value from the Father. So, some things that, as Christians, we believe about resurrection. Okay, so this is like, kind of be bullet point. What, what, is, what is Christian belief about resurrection? And when I say Christian, I mean biblical, okay? What does the Bible teach about resurrection? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. Paul, this whole chapter is about resurrection. Um, and he says this, what we already said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, he says in verse 15, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, then the dead are not raised. Uh, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So resurrection is central and critical to the Christian faith. Resurrection is central and critical to the Christian faith. You look at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's continuing down in, Christ, in Paul's argument here or in his communication but Christ or Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep so this is a way where Paul was communicating that um, so he calls he calls Jesus and his resurrection the first fruits, okay? What does that mean? Well, when you say that something is, think, think of it if you have an apple tree in your yard or something like that, and you see the first fruit bloom, right? Or mature. And you, you go to that tree and you take it down and you eat it and you see that it is good and it tastes good and you look up at the tree you don't see any others, but the assumption is, right, that because that first existed, what? More are coming. And that they will be good. And that they will be fruitful. And that they will be just like the first one, right? And so what Paul says about Jesus' resurrection is he says, look, Jesus' resurrection is the preliminary evidence, the first fruit of all the resurrections 
that are to come. And he even goes so far as to say, hey look, all the people that have died expressing faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits for all those who have fallen asleep, which is a way that they used to express those who have died, right? Because, so, super layman's terms, because Jesus was resurrected, we will be resurrected. And his resurrection is proof that resurrection is possible. And so that since he resurrected and resurrection is possible, we wait in hopeful anticipation for the moment that we will be resurrected just as he was. Not to some spiritual existence, right? But to having flesh and bones. To being able to say, hey, touch me, hold my hands, hug me, give me something to eat. Because, Paul says, he expands his argument by saying that Jesus is the new Adam. Now this takes like some connection here, right? Jesus is the new Adam. For since death, look at verse 21. For since death came through a man, who's he talking about? Adam, right? Death through sin came to humanity through Adam, right? And like through the one man, death came to us all. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ is the first fruits, right? He's the first one to be resurrected. Then, when he comes, when he comes back, those who belong to him, those expressing faith in him, will be resurrected from the dead. Then the end will come, where he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So this is kind of mixing and matching a bunch of things in Christian faith for us, right? What is resurrection? Whose resurrection comes first? What happens when Jesus comes back, right? And I will give you a little, like, sliver of a preview here, all right? At the end of summer, beginning of fall-ish, we're going to do a whole series on, uh, say broadly, the end times, okay? Um, but not just specific. Well, usually when you say that, people think you mean just Revelation. And I do mean that as well, but also the entire picture of the end times through the Scripture. Because Paul talks a lot about it. Jesus talks a lot about it. Um, and so there's lots there. But Paul gives us a little snippet here. He was like, hey, look, Jesus is going to come back. And all of those, those of us who have died until Jesus comes back, but have expressed faith in him, right? It is that, that moment when he comes back that our 
physical bodies will be resurrected from the dead. That we will be with him in the physical, tangible way. So Jesus becomes or is the new Adam. As in Adam, sin and death came to all, so in Jesus, holiness and resurrection comes to us as well. Now we're going to jump down here in 1 Corinthians 15 just a little bit further. And look at verse 42. And so it will be with the resurrection of the the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. Okay, so hear this. When you sow a seed, what do you do with it? You bury it, right? You put it in the ground, right? The body that is sown is perishable. When I die, my physical body will go in the ground and it will rot away. Right? It is perishable. The body that is sown is perishable. But when it is raised, it becomes what? Imperishable. Meaning the the body that comes, that gets resurrected from the... I'm not going to be walking around like the walking dead. Right? All zombified. Right? The body that is raised is a glorified, imperishable like version, so to speak, of the body that went into the ground. It gets sown perishable. It gets raised imperishable. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is something different happening here. But what, is, what, what I want you to hear here is that like our resurrected bodies are eternal. They're permanent, right? They are no longer perishable. I'm walking around this morning after you know, working all weekend, a sore back, sunburnt arms, cuts on my hands, right? Because my body is perishable. And without, if I'm not careful, right, I can like, totally wreck and ruin my body. Because it's not, not meant to be eternal, right? But the, the body that is resurrected from the dead is nothing like the body that I have now. It is a body, nonetheless, but it is not like the one that I have now. I want you to go back to Luke, Okay? Are you with me? Everyone good? Yeah, if you're with me, say amen. 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 Okay. I know that sometimes this can be like a little like, "Mm, this is not what I've been hearing all my life, right? Or not what I, not what the Left Behind series taught me about the end times or anything like that. Like, um, what, what I, what I endeavor to do always, all right, is not to give you 
like my 10 opinions on resurrection in the end times, right? What I endeavor to do always is to open the scripture to you, show you what I see, right? Help unpack it, right? Help, help describe it in a way that's maybe easier to like digest, okay? And then I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit with it in your life, okay? It's his job to take the truth that's proclaimed and like drive it down into your heart. And even when you don't want it there, like I want you to know that I and others are praying <laughs> that he takes it there. Okay? Um, but so back into Luke, and uh, we're gonna, I want to deal with this question. Uh, so now that Jesus has appeared to his disciples, right? Hey, peace be with you. I'm here. Look at me. Give me the fish. Feel my hands. See my feet. All that. Um, what do you think <laughs> the consequences would be for the disciples who all abandoned him and now are hiding away in fear? Now maybe just think for a second about how you would respond. My best friends said they were going to be with me always, would never abandon or leave me. We were together every day, all day for the last three years. We experienced awesome, awesome things together. In my moment where I needed them the most, they ran, they hid, they, didn't, they obviously didn't believe anything that I said. And now, guess what, guys? I'm back. Right? What do you say in that moment? And what in the world must the disciples have been, like, bracing for? Like, I'd be bracing pretty hard. Like, this is going to hurt. Um, because they, all that they had done and experienced up until that point was they had failed their Savior. They had been living in disbelief of what he had said and what he had taught them, right? They never had a hard time believing that he would actually come back from the dead. They were obviously afraid, not full of faith, right, like a good Christian should be. They were actually fearful, and they actually had a hard time believing things, and they actually, like, failed. And so it stands to reason that when, when they finally got in front of Jesus, that he was really going to let them have it. How dare you guys, right? Like, um, I guess I'm going to have to go find new followers, new disciples, um, you're worthless. I, that's, what, that's what the constant flow of shame and condemnation from the world tells us the response should be. Right? That's what we brace ourselves for. We brace ourselves for Jesus holding our failures and our fear and our disbelief over our heads and saying, why couldn't you be better? Why weren't you more? Why, why not this? Why, not, why couldn't you be more like him? Why couldn't you be more like her? Why couldn't this? Why couldn't that? And that's what we brace for. And if you're anything like me, that's kind of like the internal voice that you hear. Condemnation, shame, guilt, fear, failure. 
you, 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 you. You're not as good. You're not as this. You're not as that. As this person, that person, or whatever, right? Constant, constant, constant. So what does Jesus do in this moment where the disciples are probably bracing under their own life experience and what they expect and you and I are kind of like in that same spot. Like, well, well, how does Jesus approach us when we've like been living in disbelief and fear and failure and, and all of this, right? He's probably just going to give us the boot and show us the way out the door. Jesus does not use the failure of the disciples, the disbelief of the disciples, the fear of the disciples against them at all. He does not use them as a reason to disqualify them from being saved, from being sent, from being blessed, from being used. In fact, he, like, he runs right past everything that they did do to tell them what they were going to do now. Every single thing. Verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Like, what a, what a gracious statement. That's a statement full of God's grace and mercy. He opened their minds so that they had now greater understanding of the totality of scripture and the whole plan of God and why Jesus had to die and, and why he's back from the dead now and now what would happen from here on out. And he told them, this was what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. And on the third day, uh, or on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus tells the disciples, you will be witnesses. Now there's two ways of looking at this. There's the first way, which is like, you have witnessed all of these things that I just talked about, right? And then I think that's part of it, right? But the secondary part is like, all of these things I just talked about, and all of these things that you have seen, and all of these things that you have experienced, now you will go out and be a witness to those realities in the world that I am sending you to. You will be a witness. You will testify to repentance. You will testify to forgiveness of sins. You will testify to the grace of God over the law of man. You will testify to all nations. And he doesn't even say, he doesn't even like, he doesn't even say, and you're all alone, good luck. But he was like, no, 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 no. I will even give you the power to do it. You don't even have to do it under your own strength. You don't have to do it under your own willpower. You can totally cast off and live outside of your past fear, your past failure, your past disbelief, because I am going to send from the Father power into your lives that empowers you to testify to the things that you have seen, experienced, and know. You don't have to do it alone. 
And so while they may be having this inner monologue of how in the world will we do this, all we've done is fail the entire time, he answers the question for them. You will be witnesses of these things. You've seen it. You've experienced it. You're seeing it now. Go and tell your story. You've been forgiven. You've seen the resurrected Jesus. Guess what? Go and tell that. All right, and so often we, we come to this place of like knowing and believing and really truly like, yeah, I know that I'm supposed to. I believe in Jesus. And I, I have faith in Jesus. And I know that I am like, I am supposed to and I'm, I should. And I really want to tell other people. But I am just so afraid. I'm afraid of what they're going to think of me. I'm afraid I'm not going to have the right answers to their questions. I'm afraid that they're going to make me feel like a fool. I'm afraid that they're going to think that, well, you, know, you think you're so perfect because you love Jesus. And so until I'm perfect, I can't go tell anyone about you know, any of that. And what Jesus is telling the disciples here is he's like, hey, look, no one can invalidate your experience with me. Have you been forgiven? Yeah? Go tell them what you've been forgiven from. Have you seen and experienced the resurrected Christ in your own life? Go tell them. Because the one argument that an unbelieving world cannot invalidate is your own personal transformation when you came to faith in Jesus. What are they going to say? I used to be in bondage, but Jesus set me free. No, he didn't. Um, well, yeah, he did. I'm free. I don't believe it. Well, like, okay, but I'm free, right? I used to deal with anger and unforgiveness, but now I am eager to forgive. I love those who hate me, right? I pray for those who persecute. Like, who in the world can invalidate the personal experience that someone has with the resurrected Jesus. And that is what Jesus says to go and talk about. You don't got to know all the arguments. You don't have to have, every, you don't have, to have perfect theology. You don't got to be able to answer every single question. The man who was born blind in John chapter 8, right? And Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to him and they're like, we demand an answer. How is it that you were healed? Because it didn't fit with their theology. Right? Who healed you? Who did this? We want to know. And this guy, he's a boss, right? He's like, hey, look, guys, I don't know what you're trying to do. I don't know what you're trying to set this, up, this guy up for. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. You figure it out. <laughs> and so he uses, he uses his experience with Jesus as the, the story of Jesus' work in his life. And that's all that God is asking us to do. And he will give us the power to do it. He doesn't, Luke doesn't say much about it. Luke just says, 
this. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now this word power here is the word dynamis, which we get the word dynamic from. All right? So there is, there is something dynamic about the power that, that the father is going to send at the request of the son when he gets to heaven. It's like Jesus is like, hey guys, when I get to heaven, first thing on my list, talk to the father, he's going to send power from on high. And then what we see, and what we're going to talk about next week, is we see the, the next step in the story, the next scene in the story, where the power comes. Where power comes. And um, here's the thing, is that um, <laughs> in an unbelieving, fairly non-miraculous physical world, when the power of God comes, it really looks weird. It can look pretty weird. It doesn't fit into our, like, post-enlightenment, put it in a bullet point type of, like, spiritual education of, well, like, yeah, we got to understand everything, and we got to have a box to put everything in, and it's got to match up perfectly with, like, the six points of theology that I had, and God would be like, hold my spirit, here we go. Because there is something... There is something dynamically powerful about the Holy Spirit that um, does, not, does not abide with man's attempt to explain it. And if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you, um, if, if I both believe and, and tangibly experience God, in all of his forms, Father, Son, Spirit, in a way that I perfectly understand and can explain, then guess what? He's not very big. Because I'm not that smart. Right? You got it all figured out with God. You know exactly how it all works. You know exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit of God who hovered over the waters of creation comes into you, is what Jesus says. Don't tell me it's predictable. Don't tell me it's not messy. Don't tell me it makes a whole lot of sense. And, and it's okay to be honest. It's okay to be honest when you say, that's a little scary. And I don't always understand it. And I don't know what it means. Because there is so... There is a significant part of our faith that is beyond understanding and that must be experienced. But that when we live in a position of faith and trust that God is good... Right? We can receive the things from him that we don't understand as a measure of his goodness to us. 
up until the point where we may understand it or we may not, but still know that it is good. And so as confused as the disciples here are in Luke 24, you're going to see that there's as much confusion the next time where the power of God does come. And there may be confusion for you. And there may be confusion for me, right? There may be confusion for us. What I, what I do know is that I, I trust, <laughs> I trust, you be careful saying, about, saying this, right? I trust you, Lord. In whatever way you would choose to pour out your spirit upon us and your spirit in us. Let's have a word of prayer in closing as the worship team comes back up. Certainly, Lord, we do want to be the people that believe without seeing, that don't like get surprised or shocked when you show up in our lives. And we want to be a people Lord who eagerly testify and witness to the grace that you have poured out in our lives. Lord, thank you for resurrection power. Thank you, Lord, that in Jesus, death has been swallowed up, the grave has been swallowed up, and that the resurrection, Lord, that we experience will be so bodily glorifying that any joy, any pleasure, any, any celebration that we experience in the here and now pales in comparison to who we will be when you return. Resurrected, glorified, eternal body. Thank you, Father, for breathing the life of your spirit into these dry bones and bringing us back to life. In Jesus' name, amen.